Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from Germany, Hungary, Brazil, the United States, and a see you in hell that's the celebration of a dead fascist from the fascist Italian period. I'm going to start out with Germany. Five people have been charged with another right-wing coup plot in that country. This is coming weeks after Germany thwarted a previous right-wing coup plot that involved a minister, you know, like an actual member of the German parliament, as well as the kind of disgraced and outsider member of a fallen German nobility branch. This group is much smaller. It only has five people in it. It had four men and one woman. And the keystone of their plan was to kidnap the health minister of the German government, a man named Karl Lauterbach, whom these people disliked because of his COVID precautions. The five Germans were charged with treason, specifically for being involved in a far-right plot. Additionally, they've been charged with founding domestic terrorist organizations, preparing for treasonous acts, and violating weapon laws. All five of them are sovereign citizen types, which in Germany are called Reichsburger people. Essentially, they believe that the German government of today is an illegitimate one, and that the only real government of Germany is the 19th century German Empire that was toppled after World War I. So, yeah, again, this is extreme right-wing Germans who think that all of the German governments that happened after World War I are illegitimate compromise governments, which, uh, if you remember from history class, is precisely what the actual Nazis were claiming. Their plan was to incite a civil war slash mob rule through political violence, starting with abducting this health minister. Moving on to Hungary, the government of Hungary, run by Viktor Orban, has announced that it will again host CPAC, that is the Conservative Political Action Committee. CPAC, which has for years been the leading light of conservatism in the United States, has recently been moving abroad, with CPACs being held in Latin America, being held in Hungary, and also being held in Israel. Hungary is again hosting the CPAC. They did it last year as a sort of European CPAC. It is part of a longer-term strategy on the part of CPAC to organize the right wing internationally, and on the part of Orban as the leader of the Hungarian right wing to cement Hungary's right wing as a bastion of international right wing power. His goal is to increase the relative importance of Hungary vis-a-vis -vis the right wing in other countries, especially as the right wing loses out in countries like the United States and Brazil. Literally, the organizers of this event have said that their plan is to, quote, make the liberals nightmare, that is, the international coalescence of national forces, end quote. So yeah, they're deliberately planning a right-wing international organization. They think that CPAC held in Hungary is a perfect example of this. The meeting itself will be held on the first weekend of May. Moving on to Brazil, there are ongoing updates regarding the attempted coup in Brazil on January 8th of this year. Specifically, Brazilian authorities have been doing a lot of investigations and trying to figure out exactly what it is that was going on, how these plots were planned, and the relationship between the military and the actual people who invaded the three government branch buildings that were invaded on January 8th. Specifically, they found that some soldiers who worked at the presidential building in the Plaza of the Three Powers, which is the site in Brasilia, the capital of Brazil that had been invaded, they found that some soldiers who worked at this presidential building attended pro-coup rallies. That is, sitting members of the military 
who worked in the presidential executive building, like where President Lula does in fact work every day. They attended rallies that were calling for military coups. They were even parts of threads, like planning threads on WhatsApp and Telegram, which were planning the invasion of these buildings. Lula has sacked these people, they no longer work for the military in this capacity, and they're being investigated for their other crimes. But again, just like, this is pretty, this is pretty terrifying. Like, they found out that actual people who did work in essentially the security detail of the presidency of Brazil were cooperating with this coup attempt. And not only were they cooperating, they actually seem to have been somewhat involved in planning it. Lula has also begun cleaning up the Brazilian Highway Patrol, which, if you recall, was part of a previous attempted coup on behalf of Jair Bolsonaro, the former right-wing president of Brazil. This coup took place on October 31st. It was the actual day of the second step of the Brazilian presidential election. This was when Lula was facing off against Bolsonaro in a runoff vote. The Brazilian Highway Patrol strategically blocked off roads and like waylaid buses that were full of people who they assumed to be Lula supporters because of where the buses were coming from. The government of Brazil found that this did not actually affect the vote in any way. And anyway, Lula did win, but it was pretty close. You know, he only won by about 2%. So Lula has been clearing up the Brazilian Highway Patrol, which was previously led by a staunch Bolsonaro supporter. This is an indication, all of these activities that Lula is doing, it's an indication that he's being incredibly serious about this stuff. Specifically, the thing that he is doing that the United States has not done pretty much at all is he is being very serious about the connections between the military and other parts of the state security apparatus and the actual political right wing, you know, the, the, the militants, the paramilitaries, the just regular civilians who are out there trying to end democracy. The United States has specifically avoided any and all questions about this, and I think it's much to our detriment. I don't know when we're going to find out how and why it took the National Guard so long to respond to an obvious attempted coup in the United States on January 6th, 2021. Brazil, they're going to find out way faster. You know, this coup happened like a couple weeks ago, and they're already on this shit. Additionally, Lula has accused Jair Bolsonaro of attempting genocide, of a group of indigenous peoples in the Amazon. These indigenous peoples were found to be malnourished and neglected by government forces that were supposed to provide them with aid. And Lula is claiming that this is genocide. Bolsonaro, meanwhile, is still in the United States recovering from an intestinal problem that is presumably related to his previous stabbing incident, which happened during his previous presidential campaign back in 2017. Bolsonaro is expected to return to Brazil, but he probably will need some surgery and hospital time when he does get back. Moving on to the United States, white nationalists have been marching unopposed in San Francisco. Specifically, they walked unopposed in the annual Walk for Life rally, which is an anti-abortion rally that's held in San Francisco every year. Nazis from the White Lives Matter group, those are, you know, capital letters, capital white, capital L, capital matter, uh, they were marching alongside those who opposed abortion rights. And this is a big tragedy. You know, fascists need to know that they cannot march unopposed. Now, obviously, there were pro-abortion rights counter-protesters who were attending this event, but there weren't any who were specifically opposing the involvement of these fascists. 
in my opinion and in the opinion of a lot of people who study fascism, it's really important that fascists know that they cannot be in public unopposed. They have to actually be confronted in public space and to know that they can't be there without being confronted and being opposed. Moving on to the continuing fallout of the January 6, 2021 attempted coup in the United States, there has been a conviction for the January 6th Capitol invader who famously put his shoes on Nancy Pelosi's desk. You've probably seen a picture of this guy. He's lounging with his feet up on the Speaker of the House's desk. He used her official stationery to write a kind of gross comment that involved a sexist slur uh, regarding her and other members of Congress. He came to Washington, D.C., it has now turned out, with a walking stick, uh, which had a concealed 950,000-volt stun device inside of it. Apparently, this is something that he believed he needed for self-defense. This means that he was entering the Speaker of the House's office with a very dangerous weapon. His conviction is an indication that the government is not accepting pretty much any excuse for the activity, the brazen activity, of a lot of the people who invaded the Capitol buildings. Continuing on that note, we have gotten seditious conspiracy charges for four Oath Keepers who were also involved in the January 6th attempted coup. These people are Joseph Hackett, Roberto Minuta, uh, David Morshell, and Edward Vallejo. These come out of Department of Justice investigations into the leaders of the coup. The Department of Justice is also currently engaging in a trial prosecuting Enrique Tarrio, the former leader of the Proud Boys. Now, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers were some of the biggest actual armed forces present on the ground on January 6th. And the four people, the four Oath Keepers, who were charged this week were some of the members of the vanguard of the actual attack on the Capitol building. They, the DOJ says, and they, you know they've been found actually guilty of doing this, they approached the Capitol building in military stack formation. That is, they were acting like an advanced military guard. They engaged in intentional clashes with the police ahead of the arrival of the rest of the protest. One of the members who was convicted this week said that he wanted a guerrilla war between the right wing and the United States security forces in the wake of the attempted coup. So these are people who were like there on the ground a, acting as like the advance guard, the vanguard of this attack, of this attempted coup, and people who were part of the organization, the Oath Keepers, one of the ones that was most in direct contact with the Trump administration. Remember that members of the Oath Keepers and also members of the Proud Boys were in contact with the Trump administration via intermediaries, such as Paul Gosar and also Roger Stone. This means that these convictions might let some people get freaked out, right? Then they might actually flip and start talking about the actual political connections and the political planning behind this attempted coup. Whether or not the Department of Justice or any other part of the United States government has the courage to actually engage in those investigations in time to prevent Donald Trump's standing for the presidency in 2024, we're just going to have to see. Finally, going to close out this week like I do every week with See You in Hell a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, I'm talking about Luigi Federzoni, a fascist leader in Italy during World War II. Federzoni was born in Bologna in 1878. He was a well-educated person. He attended college to become a journalist and was a professional writer prior to World War I. He wrote for many major newspapers and magazines in Italy, primarily in northern Italy 
and Rome. He was an early leader of the country's nascent nationalist movement after Italian unification. He represented nationalist forces in the Italian parliament and was identified with a pro-monarchy nationalism. Eventually, with the rise of Mussolini, that would slide into a pro-fascist situation. Petrozzoni wanted Italy to join World War I prior to the war. He specifically wanted Italy to join on the Entente side, that is, with France and the United Kingdom. That is, in fact, what Italy eventually did. Italy joined the war as a member of the Entente. That is the side that the United States eventually joined as well. So, yeah, he was part of the victorious coalition there. After Italy joined World War I, he himself enlisted in the military in the artillery as an officer. He got medals and proved his loyalty and his worth as a good nationalist. After World War I, he became an ardent supporter of Mussolini as the new leader of the nationalist bloc. His association with Mussolini and his rapprochement with fascism made him an early minister in the Italian fascist government. He became the minister of the interior, and later had some charge over foreign affairs. In this situation, he was a little bit of a moderate, actually. Uh, he was opposed to the extreme influence of Germany over Italian foreign affairs, and advocated for Italy maintaining a path of mediation between the Nazis and the United Kingdom. This, remember that he advocated for joining the United Kingdom in World War I. He wanted to fight against the Germans, and did. However, his position failed, and Mussolini led Italy on the road to warfare as an ally of Germany. This put him at odds with Mussolini, especially regarding these foreign affairs questions. And he eventually became a part of the opposition to Mussolini after the Allied invasion of Italy in 1943. His opposition to Mussolini allowed him to position himself as sort of like a, an, a quasi-outsider figure, in the fascist Italian situation. After the war, he was sentenced to life for his involvement in the fascist Italian government in 1945, but he was very quickly amnestied in 1947, and then returned to Italy to live for the remainder of his life. For the rest of his life, for the next 20 years, he authored a couple books, largely about, you know, Italian poets and artistic questions, and, you know, some memoirs and stuff like that, but he had basically fallen out of the public light and never really saw justice for his involvement in the fascist Italian government. He died this week in history, apparently peacefully, the 24th of January, 1967. So, Luigi Federzoni, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. And I mean that sincerely, that's how people actually hear about the podcast. Tell your friends, family, and comrades about the podcast. And also check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out and all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right and fascism 15. All right. Thanks very much. And I'll talk to you next week.